The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. President fails to answer Russian attack. It's Thursday, March 1st, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Russia has just raised the stakes in the nuclear weapons race. In his annual address to Russian lawmakers overnight, Vladimir Putin announced that Russia has developed nuclear weapons that can avoid even U.S. missile defense systems. And Putin says Russia plans to beef up its nuclear arsenal with cruise missiles capable of hitting any point in the globe. Putin's comments were clearly aimed at the United States. It sounded like the Cold War all over again. Later this month, Putin is expected to win a fourth term as president of Russia. But really, our top story is the same as it has been, that the president of the United States is doing nothing to stop Russia's cyber attack or retaliate for what it's already done. This week, the heads of all U.S. intelligence agencies agreed Russia has already begun its assault on the 2018 election. And one day after the head of the National Security Agency told Congress that Trump has issued no orders to stop the election meddling, Trump posted the two-word tweet in all caps with an exclamation mark, of course, witch hunt tweeting instead of enforcing the sanctions Congress ordered him to enforce last August. The FBI and American intelligence say they're doing what they can, considering they have been given no orders. For Trump to issue such orders would be to admit that his victory over Hillary Clinton might not have been his victory at all. We learned this week that U.S. intelligence knew before the 2016 election that Russia had infiltrated voter websites and registration systems in seven states. But intelligence officials could only issue a vague warning because that information was classified and state election officials are not cleared to see federally classified information. That may change. There's talk now of giving them that clearance if they qualify. Six or seven of the states said the feds were wrong, that their own state cyber monitoring had found no evidence of hacking. Some of the states simply refused to listen to that admittedly soft warning. Some turned down offers of federal cyber help. That may change now as well. 21 states were targeted by the Russians. Seven were actually breached. The Obama administration did advise states whether they were or were not among the targets, but because so much of this was classified, the states were not told that the hackers were Russians looking to mess with the election. That may or may not change. The Pentagon, along with the State Department, will spend $40 million to combat online propaganda and other forms of meddling by foreign governments. This new global engagement center will be asking other agencies and groups around the country for ideas. The agencies and groups with the best ideas will be awarded grants to put those ideas to work to prevent future election interference or any other kind of foreign-based troublemaking. The project is part of an effort ordered last summer by Congress. National Security Director Mike Rogers told Congress this week, I believe President Putin has clearly come to the conclusion there's little price to pay here and that therefore I can continue this activity. Clearly, said Rogers, what we have done hasn't been enough. The president meanwhile, ignores the Russian attack, blames Obama for not doing more, and again tweets the words witch hunt. The investigation into Trump's ties with Russia, meanwhile, continues to close in on the President of the United States. 
White House Communications Director Hope Hicks resigned yesterday, one day after behind-closed-door testimony for the House Intelligence Committee investigating Russia and Trump. Hicks had refused to answer any questions about anything that's happened since Trump took office, except to say that she has sometimes been instructed to tell what she calls white lies for the president. But mostly, she said she had been advised not to answer questions about the Trump White House. Hicks did answer questions about the campaign and, after some hesitation, about the transition. Hicks did no doubt speak more freely for the Mueller investigation, and she was a crucial part of the conversation on Air Force One when Trump concocted a lie on behalf of his son about the Trump Tower meeting with Russians. Robert Mueller is investigating that conversation, one that led a White House official to resign because he believed he was witnessing obstruction of justice. In that conversation, Hicks had assured Trump and legal spokesman Mark Corallo that Don Jr.'s emails about that meeting would never get out. Hope Hicks is close to the heart of this investigation now, along with the president. Outside of Jared Kushner and Trump's kids, no one has been closer to Trump in the past few years than Hope Hicks. And she has now resigned as Trump's fourth communications director in a year as the Mueller investigation closes in on Trump. And it's closing in fast now. As part of his obstruction of justice investigation, the special counsel is also reportedly looking into Trump's attempts to fire Attorney General Jeff Sessions. The timing could not be more remarkable. Trump's been attacking his attorney general again this week, angry that Sessions hasn't investigated the investigators. Trump tweeted in all caps that Sessions' actions and inactions are disgraceful, and he referred to Sessions as Mr. Magoo. Trump continues to be angry at Sessions for recusing himself from the Russia probe and for not doing more to defend him. Sessions, who normally remains quiet during these regular attacks, this time issued a public statement defending his integrity and honor. And Sessions defiantly went to dinner last night with the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who does oversee the Russia probe, and also dining with them the nation's Solicitor General. Robert Mueller is looking into Trump's pressure on Sessions as part of his obstruction of justice investigation. NBC News reports the Mueller team is asking its witnesses whether Trump knew about the stolen Democratic emails before they were released and whether Trump had anything to do with their being released within an hour after the Access Hollywood tape dropped, the one in which he talked about grabbing women by their genitals. Mueller wants to know if Trump knew WikiLeaks planned to publish those emails and whether Trump learned that from Roger Stone. Donald Trump's been friends with Roger Stone for decades, but we don't know if Trump knows or how much he knows about what Stone's been up to. It was WikiLeaks that published the Democratic emails that had been stolen by Russians, and Trump's longtime friend Roger Stone had been in touch with WikiLeaks at around that time. Stone himself admitted this under oath to the House Intelligence Committee six months ago, but said his contact with WikiLeaks was through an intermediary, a journalist, he said, but he wouldn't name names. And nine months before that, WikiLeaks had said it never communicated with Roger Stone. And now we know they were both lying. Private direct messages from Twitter obtained by The Atlantic show that Stone and WikiLeaks communicated directly on October 13, 2016, just three weeks before the election. Just before that October email, Stone had predicted that WikiLeaks would have a big lock-them-up revelation. Days later, WikiLeaks released the stolen emails immediately after 
the revelation about Trump's crude access Hollywood comments. Robert Mueller is now reportedly looking into what, if anything, Roger Stone told his longtime friend Donald Trump as the Mueller investigation closes in on Trump. That secret Trump Tower meeting with Russians offering dirt on Clinton was in June of 2016. By July, Trump was talking about emails he claimed Clinton had deleted from her server. By July 27th, Trump told the cameras, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. The emails were published about two months later, and Trump sang the praises of WikiLeaks, which his own Homeland Security director calls a hostile non-state intelligence threat. Mueller also reportedly wants to know why the Trump campaign took foreign policy positions favorable to Russia. In the midst of claims that after a year to a year and a half, the Trump-Russia investigation has gone nowhere, consider this. At just nine months into the Mueller investigation, 19 people have now been hit with more than 100 criminal charges. Among those charged Trump's campaign manager and over a dozen Russians. 15 of the 19 were charged just in the past 10 days. It's picking up steam. Five of the 19 have pleaded guilty to some of the less serious criminal charges in exchange for their cooperation with the prosecution. Four of the 19 worked for the Trump campaign. At least one served in his administration as national security advisor. More than half those 100 charges are against former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort and his number two in the campaign, longtime business partner Rick Gates. Together, they faced 58 of the 100 criminal counts, including conspiracy against the United States, and together, they pleaded not guilty. But after all these years, Manafort and Gates are not partners anymore. Gates decided to change his plea to guilty, and it appeared he would cooperate with the special counsel's investigators, perhaps agreeing to testify against Manafort. The flipping of Rick Gates and all these new charges are a big deal. It's the closest the investigation has come to the president, with 27 criminal charges against his campaign manager, the assistant manager, and four of the 13 Russians. But then both Gates and Manafort were caught lying, even after they'd been charged with these serious crimes. Manafort had lied about the property he'd put up as collateral for his $10 million bond. It was property he didn't actually own. Gates was caught lying while he was being interviewed by the investigators as they tried to negotiate a plea deal. The FBI already had evidence to show Gates it knew he was lying. And then on Friday, the Mueller team filed a string of new and very serious money laundering charges against both Mueller and Gates. They turned up the heat even more on both men, and although Manafort continues to plead not guilty, Gates is now cooperating fully. The details of Gates' plea agreement are astounding. It says he will be wherever and whenever the investigators need him to be and that he's required to turn over all relevant documents and that he will testify in court if he's asked to do so. In that agreement, he even agrees to work undercover for the investigators, although it's hard to imagine anyone not knowing this since it's published in open court documents unless Gates has already performed his undercover work in which case this agreement simply gives him credit for that when it comes time to consider his sentence. And the agreement remains in effect even after Gates is sentenced. Gates agrees that his sentence could mean six years in prison for him, so he's more motivated than ever to cooperate. And Gates has also agreed to delay his sentencing until his cooperation is complete in the eyes of the Mueller team. Gates' sentence can then be based on how valuable he was 
and how cooperative he ultimately was or wasn't. The consensus is Gates will help the prosecution in its efforts to either break Manafort's not guilty resolve or to convict Manafort in court. Manafort was one of three Trump campaigners represented in that Trump Tower meeting with the Russians. While nearly all the charges against Gates have now been dropped, the pressure on Manafort to also flip has grown intense. Nearly all the charges once aimed at Gates and Manafort are now only faced by Paul Manafort. And new charges have been added for Paul Manafort. And now Mueller is investigating whether Manafort promised a Chicago banker a job in the Trump administration in exchange for a $16 million loan. Yesterday, Paul Manafort was arraigned at a federal court in Washington where he again pleaded not guilty and he'll be arraigned again separately in a Virginia district court tomorrow. Yesterday, Manafort's trial date was set for September 17th. And next to Don Jr. and Jared Kushner, Manafort is as close as it gets to Trump during the campaign. So while the investigation may seem like a series of baby steps to us, the baby has grown and its steps have picked up in both pace and length of stride. The flipping of Rick Gates is a giant step forward in the Mueller investigation, which is closing in on Trump. Meanwhile, back at the White House, Trump's lawyers are weighing their options or whether they have any when it comes to the upcoming interview of Trump by Mueller. Some of Trump's lawyers don't want him to answer Mueller's questions at all. They argue such a grilling would set a bad precedent for future presidents eroding their power. But the Wall Street Journal reports that Trump's lawyers are preparing for an interview. They're considering asking that Mueller's questions be limited in scope and no trick questions, questions that could test his memory in ways that could unfairly trap him into perjuring himself. Trump's lawyers want to limit the face-to-face -face testimony that Mueller's demanding with the option of still providing written answers to those face-to-face -face questions. His lawyers want to make sure Trump doesn't ad-lib himself into a corner. They don't want Trump entrapped, contradicting any of the thousands of emails and documents the White House has already turned over to Mueller. But it remains to be seen whether the Mueller team will accept any of these terms or whether there ever will really be an interview. With or without Trump's cooperation, Robert Mueller is still closing in. Newsweek reports Mueller's people have been asking witnesses what Russia might have on Trump, what compromising information Russia may know about Trump. In short, Mueller's asking about those salacious allegations in the Steele dossier, the part about the hookers. Investigators may find nothing, but they can say they at least looked. Every box is being checked. And even if they do find something salacious, the greater threat to Trump is more likely to be information about his finances. Mueller's team is asking about Trump's trip to Moscow in 2013 for the Miss Universe pageant and his decision to run for president six months later. They're also asking why the plans to build a Trump Tower in Moscow fell apart. Mueller is now looking into Trump's business dealings before Trump announced his candidacy, including real estate deals in Florida and New Jersey, and looking into Jared's New Jersey deals as well. The Republicans in Congress, meanwhile, are avoiding looking into Trump's business dealings, saying that is a red line. They say they see no reason to look into Trump's finances, even as he continues to refuse to release his tax returns. Quoting Orrin Hatch in the Senate, we're not going to do that. Besides, says House Republican Trey Gowdy, isn't that what Bob Mueller is doing? Democrats say Trump's finances will be examined by Congress if the upcoming midterm elections swing control away from the Republicans. 
And then there's the president's son-in-law and top advisor, Jared Kushner. Kushner, who's in charge of the Middle East, Mexico, and Israel. And thanks to the Washington Post, we now know that at least four countries have talked about how Kushner could be manipulated. Those four countries are the United Arab Emirates, Mexico, Israel, and China. They know about Kushner's loans and real estate deals and Kushner's impending financial doom on the mortgage at 666 Fifth Avenue in New York. They know Jared has zero foreign policy experience, and they see him, as a UAE official put it, they see him as manipulable. We know this thanks to messages from those foreign officials that were intercepted by U.S. intelligence. It caused concern with Trump's national security advisor that Kushner hadn't coordinated with or reported to national security officials about his contacts with foreign officials, the ones in which Kushner may have tried to solicit investors for that $2 billion mortgage problem on Fifth Avenue. NSA Chief H.R. McMaster worried that Kushner was, quote, naive and being tricked. And all of this comes just as Kushner has lost his top-secret security clearance. The White House says that won't be a problem, that Jared will still be able to handle all his usual jobs. But Kushner will no longer be able to read the president's daily brief that the president himself doesn't read. It was, in fact, a demotion for Kushner, a humiliation. The White House calligrapher now has a higher security clearance than Jared Kushner. And a security clearance may be the least of Kushner's problems. As the Mueller investigation closes in on him as well about those unreported foreign meetings and about an apparent pay-for-play scheme in which Kushner granted White House meetings for company executives who gave him over a half billion dollars in loans. The companies include Citigroup. After Trump promised voters the best people in his administration, he must have realized he was already surrounded by them. The husband of a woman on the household staff at Trump Tower now works at the Region 2 headquarters for the Environmental Protection Agency. Trump's son-in-law became his Middle East envoy, one of many official hats worn by Jared. Trump's golf caddy became the White House director of social media. His bodyguard became the director of Oval Office operations. His bankruptcy lawyer is now the U.S. ambassador to Israel. His son's wedding planner now runs the Northeastern District Headquarters for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. And his apprentice co-star Omarosa worked for a while as public liaison to the White House. Now Trump wants his personal pilot to run the Federal Aviation Administration. And as with so many Trump appointments, pilot John Duncan does not have the usual qualifications to head the FAA. Like so many of the others, Duncan has extremely limited government experience, if any. He also isn't a pilot, according to an official at the FAA. What John Duncan has done is manage airlines and airline departments and ran the air fleet for the Trump campaign. And Duncan at some point told Trump that if a pilot were in charge of the FAA, there would be no more flight delays. And if Trump gets Duncan confirmed for the FAA job, Duncan will then also be part of Trump's friends and family plan. It should also be noted that on Duncan's watch as head of the Trump campaign fleet, his pilots skidded off runways and made teeth-clenching landings repeatedly. During the campaign, one of Duncan's pilots took Mike Pence and his plane off the end of the runway, forcing New York's LaGuardia Airport to shut down. But because Duncan once told Trump that a pilot could eliminate flight delays and because Trump knows Duncan, Duncan could soon be in charge of everyone's air safety. 
Trump, by the way, has also chosen his new campaign manager to run his campaign for 2020. He's Brad Parscale, who did an impressive job as head of Trump's digital advertising in 2016. But Parscale is also tied to a penny stock firm with a sketchy history. And he's a longtime associate of a convicted fraudster. The Associated Press reports Parscale has recently signed a $10 million deal to sell his unprofitable digital marketing company. His company got $19 million from investors and has just over $100,000 to show for it now. One of Trump's previous campaign managers will be in federal court tomorrow, facing felony charges that include conspiracy against the United States. It's all as real as it is unusual. Republicans discrediting the FBI and Democrats defending the Bureau. To support their case, Republicans say the FBI is rotten at the top, using a Democratic document to pursue a case against a Republican president's campaign. Republicans say the Bureau used the Steele dossier to get surveillance warrants on Trump campaign aide Carter Page, a known agent for Russia. The Republican leader of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, had put together a memo outlining what he said are the FBI's sins. The memo was never shown to Democrats on the committee. Instead, it was rammed through along party lines without discussion. The FBI saw the memo only briefly and responded by saying the Republican memo leaves out crucial facts and that those omissions make that memo inaccurate. Democrats say the Republican memo is misleading. So the committee's Democratic leader, Adam Schiff, wrote a response demonstrating the FBI investigation was inspired not by the Steele dossier, but by the loose lips of another Trump campaign aide, George Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos had bragged to an Australian diplomat that the campaign had access to Russian dirt on Hillary Clinton, and that diplomat then passed along what he had heard to U.S. intelligence. That's how it started, not the Steele dossier. Congressman Schiff also points out that U.S. officials had good reason to surveil Carter Page and that it had been watching him for a few years. So why did the Republican majority on the House Intelligence Committee vote to release a memo that contradicts their own? Well, several reasons. First, they had said they would. Republicans had already grabbed the spotlight by releasing their memo first, even though Democrats had their response ready when that vote was taken. So although the Republicans wouldn't release the Democratic memo along with their own, they did agree to release it later. Unlike the Republican memo, it was reportedly reviewed by Trump, but unlike the Republican memo, the Democratic response was rejected by Trump, at least not without some redactions. That redaction process dragged on for two more weeks. And then over the weekend, when most Americans were having a weekend, House Republicans finally released the redacted Democratic memo to the public with no spotlight. In case anyone was paying attention over the weekend, Intel Chairman Devin Nunes accused Democrats of colluding with parts of the United States government. But by then, no one was thinking about memos anymore, and Republicans had already made their institution attacking point complete with lies of omission. But they did finally release the Democratic memo on a Saturday evening. Quoting ranking member Adam Schiff, I think the White House tried to bury it as long as they could. That very evening, after the Democratic response was released and after Trump had tweeted his ridicule of it, he picked up the phone and called one of his favorite Fox News hosts. I don't want to sound braggadocious, he told the audience. I was a far better candidate. She was not a good candidate, said Trump. And what did President Obama know, asked Nunes. 
in the end, the entire fiasco, the first memo, Trump's release of it, the second memo, Trump's rejection of it, and then its ultimate release, in the end, it was precisely the distraction that it was intended to be, and it gave Trump supporters no reason to stop. As expected, the boost in Trump's approval rating after the State of the Union speech is over, way over. Trump's back down to his lowest point, one that he again holds alone, an approval rating of 35%. It was up to 40% right after the State of the Union speech and before recent drops in the stock market that Trump had bragged about in that speech. Trump's support has even ticked down a notch among Republicans. As expected, there were new scandals in the Trump administration and new tweets from the president. Only 5% of Democrats approve of Donald Trump. Only 35% of independents do, matching Trump's overall rating. Only 29% of women approve of Trump. The poll shows that after that State of the Union market bump, Trump is back to being the least popular president in recorded history. The poll shows only a third of us like his policy on guns, but the polling was still underway as Trump was just beginning to talk more about his gun views in the wake of the Florida shooting. Like, teachers with guns. More about that plan, a gut punch for labor unions, and a surprisingly big week for LGBT rights after this. Just a quick reminder here to do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon when you do, so it's very important to shop through my link for home, school, church, or office. Now, if you would prefer not to use Amazon for any reason, please support this free newscast through the PayPal donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. Having supported, even having written the nation's gun laws, the National Rifle Association laid low, refusing to comment on the Valentine's Day killings at Stoneman Douglas High School. And then, a week ago tonight, CNN held a televised town hall meeting that included survivors of the shooting, lawmakers, and the spokeswoman for the National Rifle Association. Even Dana Lesh was unusually low-key, but stood the NRA's ground. The next day, at the annual Conservatives Convention in Maryland, NRA Executive Wayne LaPierre was there to rail against Democrats and the latest talk of gun law reform. Donald Trump was there, too, to tell his base that Democrats would repeal your tax cuts and put judges in you wouldn't believe. They'll take away your Second Amendment, said Trump, adding, which we will never allow to happen. Democrats have expressed no desire to raise taxes on regular Americans or any desire to repeal the Second Amendment. Still, it was Trump talking to his base, again rallying cries of lock her up when he spoke of Hillary Clinton. They also chanted build the wall, prompting Trump to respond, you're getting a wall, don't worry. But Trump made news that day on guns. He'd earlier called for banning the sale of bump stocks, again in lockstep with the NRA. And Trump said he wants to expand federal background checks on gun buyers, but he's also proposed cuts in funding for the program that conducts those background checks, a program that's already overworked. The Trump campaign got $30 million from the NRA, which itself is under investigation by the FBI for allegedly filtering Russian money to the Trump campaign. In his speech to the Conservative Political Action Caucus, Trump called for a nationwide concealed carry permit, just as the NRA has promoted, and called for arming teachers with guns, another NRA proposal. Referring to the Florida shooter, a teacher, said Trump, would have shot the hell out of him. 
House Speaker Paul Ryan says he opposes arming teachers, but also opposes restricting gun sales. And so a new public debate was launched about arming teachers with guns. Educators were shocked to hear that money that might have been spent on teachers, books, and supplies might have been spent instead on training classroom teachers to take down an active shooter. In Indiana, where deer hunting and turkey hunting are popular, a kindergarten teacher said she was stunned by Trump's proposal. I felt like he was giving up and saying, this is the new normal, instead of saying, how can we prevent this from happening? As a teacher, she said, I'm supposed to teach and nurture. The vast majority of teachers, parents, and students hate Trump's idea of arming the teachers. Even Florida's Governor Rick Scott, perhaps America's most gun-friendly governor, parts with Trump on teachers with guns. Instead, Scott has ordered that armed officers be assigned every school, at least one for every thousand students starting this fall. He's proposed money for metal detectors, bulletproof glass, steel doors, and stronger locks. And Scott wants an anonymous tip line where people can report people with guns who appear to be on the edge of violence. Scott's plan does nothing to address assault rifles or background checks right in line with the NRA. Scott parts with the NRA, however, on teachers with guns and by favoring raising the gun buying age to 21 for all guns, not just pistols. Trump also favors raising the gun buying age to 21 for civilians. Governor Scott has also called for a new restraining order that would let police confiscate guns from persons deemed dangerously mentally ill. Florida lawmakers meanwhile, voted this week not to ban the sale of assault rifles and not to require mental health checks for gun buyers. But they did raise the age to 21 for buying a semi-automatic weapon. They they did approve a three-day waiting period for all gun purchases, and they did ban the sale of bump stocks. They also voted to launch an investigation of the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High. But they also voted to let teachers and other school officials carry guns at school if they pass the background check, psychological exam, drug screening, and 132 hours of training. It was the cries of young people that prompted the Republican-led legislature to act at all. But the young people and Democrats are not satisfied with what's been done so far because these new rules in Florida are full of loopholes. The ban on bump stocks only applies to future sales. People who like their bump stocks can keep them. The new rules allow police to petition a court to take away a troubled person's gun, but only police. A private citizen cannot petition the court for that. The new age limit doesn't apply to private sales, so the Florida shooter could have still gotten a semi-automatic from a private dealer. The new background checks also don't apply to private sales, and police won't be told if someone lies on their background check. The new gun rules in Florida, even though they appear to go against the wishes of the NRA, are designed to quiet angry voters while not completely alienating the generous gun lobby. In Tallahassee, as the new rules were considered, an NRA lobbyist was booed by people in the gallery, including students from MSD High. Congress is back at work this week, but may or may not do something about guns. The latest House and Senate recess started before the Florida massacre and continued through the first protest against the lack of action on gun violence. There will be more protests this month to remind the lawmakers. But the last time Congress tried to do something, voting on a bill to ban bump stocks after the Vegas massacre last fall, uh, they failed. 
Congress already has a full plate this week between the opioid crisis and Trump's plans to slash the State Department, but it might take another run at bump stocks or consider raising the gun buying age to 21. It's even more likely to tighten our system of background checks at least to a degree. But the NRA's grip on Congress remains strong, even in the face of growing opposition to the NRA. The NRA funded many Republican campaigns. One thing neither Congress nor Florida will do is ban AR-15s, AK-47s, and the like. As popular as they are, and they are the hottest gun on the market, 61% of registered voters believe that semi-automatic weapons of that type should be banned. Nearly half of us say a lack of gun control leads to these mass shootings. Just over half of us believe the focus should be on mental health, which has also not been addressed. Yesterday, Trump shocked nearly everyone, and that's saying something, when he embraced gun law proposals opposed by the NRA and Republicans. Trump called for a multifaceted bill that would expand background checks, keep guns from the dangerously mentally ill, make schools more secure, and restrict gun sales for people under 21. Trump even suggested we should consider a ban on assault weapons. But quoting one lawmaker, we're not ditching any constitutional protection simply because the last person the president talked to today doesn't like them. Democrats are also skeptical that Trump will follow through on the comments, which contradict much of what he had said to conservatives about the NRA and the Second Amendment, that he would never let them down. So was Trump lying to the NRA or everyone else? And will he stick to a position this time or change again? The survivors of the Stoneman Douglas massacre are returning to their usual classes today, but things will never be the same. 95% of the student body was back yesterday for a day of healing. Only 15 students said they just couldn't come back into that building, at least not yet. But the students are still paying attention to what is and isn't being done with an eye on the major protests that are planned throughout this month. In the meantime, the students have been online urging boycotts of companies who do business of any kind with the National Rifle Association. A bank in the red state of Nebraska dropped its NRA credit card. Hotel chains, car rental companies, and airlines dropped their discount deals. Company after company no longer wanted to be associated with the NRA, including insurance giant MetLife, which dropped its ironic discount for NRA members. Conservatives in Georgia are trying to fight back, threatening to stop $50 million in state fuel breaks for Delta Airlines after Delta ended its NRA member discount program. One state lawmaker called Delta's decision an attack on the NRA and our Second Amendment. Delta says it supports the Second Amendment. It did not mention the NRA and says it has no further comment. Delta, hubbed in Atlanta, is one of Georgia's biggest employers. FedEx, meanwhile, says that although it opposes the sale of assault rifles to civilians, it's continuing its discount deal with the NRA. Besides, it says the NRA also uses UPS. Amazon, which also relies on both FedEx and UPS, is under fire for its video streaming of the channel NRA TV. A boycott has been proposed against Amazon, if that's possible, as well as Apple for its dealings with the NRA. 
Dick's Sporting Goods, meanwhile, announced yesterday it was immediately ending the sale of all assault-type rifles and ending the sales of any guns to people under 21 years of age, regardless of the local laws at each location. The company's chief executive, Ed Stack, says these decisions are final and permanent. Quoting him, we don't want to be a part of this any longer. At least partly following suit, Walmart, which stopped selling assault-style weapons three years ago, will now sell no guns or ammo to people under the age of 21, again, regardless of laws that may allow that. Walmart says it will also stop selling toys and guns that look like assault rifles. The boycott NRA hashtag continues as universities across the country announce they will not consider any discipline against students for their political activism. Some high schools had threatened to suspend students who take part in any demonstrations, including those scheduled for the month of March, even if the students have their parents' permission. A superintendent near Houston said he would suspend the entire student body if necessary. Colleges are telling the kids not to worry if their protests go on their permanent records. Quoting the statement to students by Dartmouth, speak your truth. The statement out of Los Angeles was, UCLA stands with you. An admissions staffer at Yale tweeted, I, for one, will be cheering you students. The NRA's good guy with a gun theory didn't hold up in the case of 17 dead at a high school in Florida. There were three armed deputies outside the school during the shooting. The shooting had nearly stopped when they finally went in. One deputy has already resigned after video showed him outside the building during the gunfire waiting in a defensive position. It appeared none of the deputies tried to locate the killer. An intense investigation's underway, and the Broward County Sheriff who employs those deputies is under heavy scrutiny. Now, the deputy who resigned, Scott Peterson, says he was responding to a report of firecrackers, and when he was radioed about a gunshot victim on the football field, he naturally presumed the shooter was outside. So that's where he was. Republicans who dislike Sheriff Scott Israel's criticism of the NRA are calling for Sheriff Scott to resign because of this. The NRA goes so far as to blame the sheriff for the deaths. The FBI remains under scrutiny for its failure to investigate warnings of trouble about the high school shooter. The FBI had sat on that since last September and was warned again five weeks before the mass killing. The Florida shooting has forced Americans to look at gun violence on many levels. Trump repeated his call to armed teachers, saying they're closer to the students than the armed guards were. In Oregon, meanwhile, they have closed the boyfriend loophole. Oregon lawmakers passed a bill to ban firearms from people convicted of either stalking or domestic abuse. The old law allowed intimate partners to buy guns if they had never married or lived with the victim. That loophole will now close. It was opposed by every Republican in the Oregon House, along with one Democrat, this change. Oregon's Democratic governor says she will sign the change into law, adding... I'm encouraged to see students in Oregon and across the nation engaged and joining the call for gun safety legislation. Rhode Island has become the nation's sixth red flag state. Rhode Island's governors ordered a new policy that law enforcement must investigate red flags that pop up on social media or in the real world and to take guns away from the individuals who indicate they are planning gun violence. But there is still other news besides Russia and guns. Republicans have not stopped trying to erase the last vestiges of the Affordable Care Act. 
20 red states have joined forces in a lawsuit that argues that Obamacare is unconstitutional now more than ever. When the Supreme Court ruled on the health care law last, it declared it constitutional, but only because of the tax that was imposed on those who refused to get health insurance. Now that Congress has removed the mandate to insure and the penalty for not insuring, Republican-controlled states are arguing in their lawsuit that, by the Supreme Court's own standard, if Obamacare ever was constitutional, it isn't now. Not now that the Congress has removed the mandate and killed the tax penalty. Stay alert. Since the ACA includes the provisions that, among other things, require companies to cover pre-existing conditions and to cover children through their parents' policies until they turn 26, it is virtually impossible to reliably predict how this Supreme Court will rule. We could certainly be in for a surprise in a case that could deliver a critical injury to the nation's labor unions. For 20 years, big business conservatives have worked to undermine trade unions, They now have a case before the Supreme Court arguing that current law violates the First Amendment by requiring non-union members to pay union dues if they also benefit from union-negotiated wages and benefits. This particular case is about the unions that represent city, county, and state employees, public employees at all levels. Conventional wisdom said the high court, now mostly conservative, would side with conservative business and against the workers. Or maybe it won't. To the surprise of many, Trump-appointed Justice Neil Gorsuch sat silently Monday as others on the bench asked questions of lawyers for both sides. Gorsuch, who was once paid a speaking fee by one of the conservative groups backing the change, did not join in the discussion. Gorsuch may still vote with other conservatives on the court. He may vote against them, or he may abstain. A statewide teacher strike in West Virginia is in its sixth day. The second lowest paid teachers in the nation shut down schools last week demanding better pay and to keep their benefits. This week, the governor finally agreed to a 5% raise that would end the strike, but that raise is still hung up in the state legislature. The Supreme Court had already delivered one surprise this week, refusing to immediately take up the case of Trump's order to end the DACA or DREAMer program. DACA shields from deportation some 700,000 DREAMers, immigrants brought here as children who undergo regular screening. Trump ordered the program to end on Monday of next week. On Monday of this week, the Supreme Court refused, for now, to strike down the lower court order that puts a freeze on Trump's order. The high court wants the question to be handled by appeals courts first. In the meantime, those hundreds of thousands of DREAMers remain in limbo, partially protected, but waiting for congressional action that isn't on the horizon. At least not as long as Trump keeps rejecting the agreements reached by both parties. Those who qualify but have not signed up for DACA protection can still be deported to a country they have never known. It would apparently take a blue wave through Congress to make a solution possible. The Supreme Court this week ruled that immigrants, even immigrants with permanent legal status, can be locked up by immigration officials without a bond hearing. They used to get hearings every six months. Now they can be detained by the federal government indefinitely. In Northern California this week, immigration agents rounded up more than 150 people in a series of raids. Immigration and Customs says it would have gotten over 850 more people if they hadn't been tipped off to the raids by Libby Schaff, the mayor of Oakland, California, a sanctuary city. The president of Mexico won't be coming for a visit to the White House after all. 
President Peña Nieto was planning to visit later this month, but he was on the phone with Trump for nearly an hour last week, and it didn't go well. Nieto apparently had conditions for his visit that Trump stopped telling people Mexico would pay for his big, beautiful border wall and that Trump would not publicly embarrass Nieto by making comments about the wall during the visit. Trump refused to go along with that and, according to Mexican officials, lost his temper. Trump told Nieto that Mexico has to pay for the wall because he spent the past two years promising it would. Trump repeated that pledge on Friday at the CPAC conservatives gathering. Mexican officials quote Trump as telling Nieto in that testy phone call, if you're going to say that Mexico is not going to pay for the wall, then I do not want to meet with you guys anymore. You guys, Mexico, despite what you may have heard, is an important ally to the United States. Trump's defiant plan to trash years of Middle East diplomacy may be put into effect faster than anyone expected. Trump stunned the world, and especially U.S. diplomats, when he announced the U.S. would now recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. It was a sharp snub of the Palestinians who also live in that divided, disputed, multicultural city, and it was a departure from decades of U.S. diplomatic policy. Trump also announced the U.S. would move its Israeli embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. That, we were told, could take five years, give or take. Now it will apparently happen in about six weeks. Conservative billionaire Sheldon Adelson has offered to pay for it. Adelson is the casino magnate and Trump campaign donor who had urged Trump to make these controversial moves. It was last July when Trump tweeted to the surprise of the Pentagon that the U.S. military would no longer allow transgender people to serve their country, quote, in any capacity. He was wrong. This week, a qualified transgender recruit signed a contract with Uncle Sam and is ready to start basic training. The Pentagon won't say what branch or give the name of the recruit. Trump's tweet referenced consultation with my generals and military experts, but the Defense Department said it was caught completely by surprise. It helped that two federal judges have since ruled against the ban in lawsuits brought by lifestyle activists. By December, the Pentagon was announcing it would start accepting transgender recruits in January. And now it has, despite Trump's tweet. And on Monday, a federal appeals court judge ruled it's illegal to fire someone for being gay. The court ruled that Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 also protects sexual orientation. Specifically, Title VII bans discrimination based on, quote, race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. The ruling Monday declared that sexual orientation is a subset of sex and therefore protected. In so ruling, the court ruled against a New York skydiving company that had fired an instructor after he shared with a female student that he's gay. He only told her that because she wasn't sure she wanted to be strapped so closely to him for a jump. The student's boyfriend overheard this and reported the news to the instructor's boss, who then fired the instructor. That gay instructor will not, however, benefit from this ruling, since he died in a base jumping accident shortly after filing the lawsuit. And the U.S. Supreme Court surprised again Monday by upholding parental rights for gay couples. The Arizona State Supreme Court had ruled that divorced gay parents deserve the same consideration as divorced heterosexual couples. The U.S. Supreme Court let that state ruling stand by refusing to hear a challenge to it. 
Republican Missouri Governor Eric Greitens admits he had an extramarital affair, but he denies trying to blackmail his mistress with a nude photo he took of her without her knowledge. In a Fifty Shades moment, her hands were bound and she was blindfolded. If Greitens transmitted that image, as a grand jury believes he probably did, he's committed a felony that comes with prison time. An investigation was already underway, of course, and now others are beginning, including inquiries by state lawmakers. A Republican congressional candidate in Arizona has dropped out of the race and has conceded to his only Republican rival. Former State Senator Steve Montenegro, a minister who billed himself as a leader of virtue, was knocked out of the running by reports he had sexted with a former staffer, and that included a topless photo of her. The woman says her boyfriend found the pic on her computer and released it to the media for revenge. Revenge porn is a crime in itself. The woman had been Montenegro's digital media coordinator. Montenegro has denied the cyber affair and denies he was grooming the woman for a real-life affair. He was running to fill the vacancy left by Arizona Congressman Trent Franks, who resigned after his own odd sex scandal in which he asked multiple women to bear a child for him and his wife. Bob Seska has the week off to settle into his new old stomping grounds just outside the nation's capital. We wish him and Kimberly all the best in their new home and look forward to his return next week. I will rejoin him Tuesday on his show here on the Realm Network. It's the chair for Ben Carson. The North Pole is melting. A package for you and how not to get rid of skunks in the third and final segment up next. If you're ready to go wireless, then get the Heller Bluetooth earbuds from tweakedaudio.com. The Hellers are wireless to hook you up with your favorite songs, phone calls, and podcasts like this one. And the Hellers stay in your ears with five hours of use and a hundred hours of standby time between USB charges. The Heller has a built-in mic, a storage pouch, and comfortable gels in three sizes. Tweaked Audio's wired earbuds come in a range of colors. You can even get buds in sets of two or three. And Tweaked Audio earbuds just sound better. You certainly cannot beat the prices for this level of quality guaranteed. And the shipping is free anywhere in the world. And because everything sounds better on Tweaked Audio earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out with the code BBNC at TweakedAudio.com. Thank you for supporting this news through TweakedAudio.com and all my other great sponsors, as well as through the Donate button at BuzzBurbank.com. Even if you're one of the president's cabinet secretaries, it takes an act of Congress to spend more than five grand in taxpayer money to redecorate your office. Before Trump had even taken his oath of office, this pesky rule was unacceptable to Candy Carson, the proactive wife of now Housing Secretary Ben Carson. When Ms. Carson was informed of the $5,000 rule, she ordered the department's chief administration officer to find the money. That administrator, who has since been reassigned, says Candy Carson told her, quote, $5,000 will not even buy a decent chair. A $5,000 chair? Ms. Carson apparently believed that five grand was not enough to cradle the man who would oversee programs for the homeless and the impoverished. Quoting one woman's tweet, I'm disabled and I've been on a wait list for public housing for seven months. My local list is at least five years long. She says the $31,000 dining room set that was purchased for Carson's office with tax dollars 
would have housed two disabled people for an entire year. That's important since the Trump budget proposal cuts $7 billion from the housing budget for the homeless, the poor, and the elderly. As it turns out, it is hard to get a chair for $5,000 because the selection is rather narrow at that price level. Although it's starting to let up, a nasty flu season is still underway, and doctors say it's not too late to vaccinate. This year's strain has been two or three times as deadly as usual, especially among children. But the FDA says it's focusing on making next year's vaccine better. This year's only worked 25% of the time. That did save lives, just not enough of them. The FDA says it's taking steps to understand why the H3N2 virus is such a tough nut to crack and how we can deal with that. The FDA's Flu Advisory Committee meets today to consider the options for next year's vaccine. In Japan, meanwhile, the government has approved a new drug its maker says kills the flu virus in just one day. The pill is expected to hit the market well before next year's flu season. The pharmaceutical company Roche has the rights to sell that drug here in the U.S., but only after or if the FDA approves it. If the North Pole were to ever melt, it would be because temperatures got and stayed above 32 degrees Fahrenheit. This just in, temperatures at the North Pole this year have surged above the freezing mark. Even the scientists who have long studied this are stunned. It should not be this warm at Santa's workshop. The sun has been gone there for months and won't come up again for another three weeks. But it got up to 35 degrees recently after a big storm pumped warmer air up through the Greenland Sea. That's above normal by 50 degrees. It got up to 36 this year in the Arctic. The president, who supports carbon fuels, has called the warming of the planet a Chinese hoax. It won't rest in peace, but net neutrality was officially laid to rest one week ago today. That was the day it was published in the Federal Register, officially repealing the Obama administration order that treated the Internet like any other utility. The Trump FCC voted in December to repeal net neutrality over a public and even corporate outcry, a decision that allows net providers to control your access and make speeds better for some websites and slower for others. So Verizon and Comcast and their ilk are happy. At least 21 states are suing the Trump administration for killing net neutrality, and at least three of those states have reinstituted it within their borders. Another week, two more dog food recalls. The FDA found listeria in True Dog Treat Me Crunch Beef Delight and five-pound frozen food chubs labeled chicken and salmon recipe. That makes eight pet food recalls just in the past 30 days for listeria and salmonella contamination. Handling these contaminated foods by humans can lead to severe illness in humans and obviously the same symptoms in the pets who ingest them. Marijuana was legalized in Nevada last summer, but possession is illegal at the International Airport in Las Vegas. Pot is verboten at McCarran International to try to keep visitors and others from taking it to a state where weed isn't legal. So the Vegas airport now has marijuana amnesty boxes on the grounds. You can drop your pills in there, too, in case you've forgotten.
and the company contracted by the airport to empty the bins says it has found pot, pills, joints, and marijuana edibles in them. No word on what the contractor does with the contents. The body of evangelist Billy Graham laid in honor at the Capitol Rotunda for the last time this morning. Tomorrow, it'll be buried at a private funeral service limited to just over 2,000 people. Graham died last week at age 99. Clerks director Kevin Smith is recovering from a massive heart attack. It happened after the first of two scheduled shows at a theater in Glendale, California, Kevin Smith Live. He had the good sense to cancel that second show and go to a hospital with his chest pains. It saved his life. Well, they can roll the final credits now at the once powerful Weinstein Company. Under pressure after the sex scandal surrounding its namesake, Harvey Weinstein, the company is filing for bankruptcy. The company had been in talks to sell itself to a solid group of investors, but that plan was dashed by a lawsuit from New York's attorney general who said no one should profit from Weinstein's sexual abuses. All of this may cross your mind the next time you watch an award-winning movie from the no longer existent Weinstein Company. And you will. As we began this week, Black Panther had already broken multiple box office records and had raked in over $350 million in North America and $700 million worldwide. And that was just in the first 12 days. It is the top-grossing film in history from a black director and with a cast that's also predominantly African-American. The previous record holder was straight out of Compton, which grossed $214 million over its entire worldwide run, and that's adjusted for inflation. Black Panther pulled in about $100 million more in its first week than even Disney expected. It may soon be a rare member of the Billion Dollar Club. It's playing in IMAX in 60 countries. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please use the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. And Black Panther's not just a hit movie, it's the hit album. Black Panther, the album, is music from and music inspired by the movie. The Greatest Showman soundtrack is third on the album charts. The Fifty Shades soundtrack is number five, somewhere between Justin Timberlake and Ed Sheeran. Fifty Shades is actually more popular in Germany than Black Panther. Black Panther fever is everywhere, though. Moviegoers are wearing costumes inspired by the movie to the showings. And in Atlanta, the airport posted a photo of its sign for Gate T3, which announced that the flight to Wakanda departs at 7.30 p.m. Wakanda is the fictional country in which the Black Panther story takes place. And now, the jobs corner. 53-year-old Luis Vela Figueroa was a prep cook in a restaurant, and he didn't want to let down his boss, so he stayed on and trained his replacement. He stayed on and trained his replacement even though he had just won $2.5 million in a scratch-off lottery. Luis says he'll probably buy a house and start his own business. City officials in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada have a job opening, which they have posted online. A lot of people have seen this want ad because it's gone viral. The city of Edmonton, you see, says it needs a goat coordinator. Edmonton's been testing using 170 goats to keep the weeds down in Rundle Park. It would be the job of the goat coordinator to run the program efficiently and to hold occasional meet and bleat events. It requires knowledge of vegetation management 
and it pays up to 43 bucks an hour. And they may be looking for postal carriers for the nudist resort in Florida called Eden RV Resort and Retreat, not quite an hour north of this studio. The substitute mail carrier on that route has been refusing to deliver packages to the RVs and the small family homes inside that resort, apparently out of a fear of packages. Quoting a woman who's lived there 10 years, she marks it undeliverable. And sometimes it's important, says the resident, like with our neighbor, medication. Sometimes she says you can't wait until Monday or Tuesday. The residents say their regular carrier has no problem with the to-the-door deliveries, but they say they'd be happy if the sub would at least just drop their mail off at the park's front office. It doesn't even do that. Mail carriers are allowed some leeway in deciding where they will and won't carry mail. In Texas, it's aggressive dogs that keeps them away. In Ohio, it's people with territorial turkeys. In Detroit, it's bedbugs. At Eden Resort in Florida, it's the lack of pants. Pipe organs are grand and awesome things, and we should always keep at least a few of them in the world. So we salute the Masonic Memorial Center in Brisbane, Australia, for having one of the grandest pipe organs since 1930. Unfortunately, the few pipes that got broken the other night are reportedly irreplaceable. In his defense, the lawyer for 51-year-old Freemason Glenn Langford says his client had just endured the breakup of a 16-year romantic relationship. He had downed a bottle of Johnny Walker whiskey and, according to the lawyer, had plans to pass out cheeseburgers to the homeless. Along the way, however, he broke into the Masonic Center's Grand Hall carrying two toys, a toy gun and a remote-controlled car. He took off all of his clothes, and from there, we don't exactly know. Firefighters found Glenn sleeping naked among the broken pipe organ pipes. They were responding to a fire alarm, apparently set off by the flooding that Glenn had somehow caused in the building. After sobering up, Glenn apologized to Freemasons everywhere and explained... I was out of it. The meatball mystery was solved, as all cases are, by the evidence. 2.37 p.m. Monday of this week, a man arrives at his home in Hazel Township, Pennsylvania, and discovers the pot of meatballs he had in the garage had gone missing. And then he spotted a man covered in red sauce, marinara from the meatballs, no doubt. The theft victim called the Pennsylvania State Police who responded and found that empty meatball pot lying in the street in front of the home of another man. When they apprehended this 48-year-old meatball marauder, they knew they had caught him red-faced because he had red sauce on his face. He also had an outstanding warrant for failure to appear in a previous case. Now in jail, he will appear for his next hearing for burglary and theft charges of meatballs. And finally, if you get skunks in your home's crawl space, do not try to use a smoke bomb to chase them away. That did not work out at all well for a guy in Ferndale, Michigan. The flames had spread through his first floor by the time the fire department arrived. It didn't help the man waited 15 minutes before calling 911. A fire can double in size every 30 seconds, and this one was one of those. The fire had spread to the attic by the time it was brought under control by the firefighters. But at least the skunks are gone. 
we think. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.